scripture is, the title of the sermon is God the Father. And the, uh, uh, we'll be reading from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, you. We're in the Advent season, um, the Sundays before Christmas, as we prepare uh, Christians all over the world are preparing to celebrate Christmas and think about what Christmas means to them and, and to their families, to their churches, to the world. And every Christmas I like to remind ourselves um, the God that we worship is more incredible than we can imagine. Not just some large, powerful person, but tripersonal, Trinitarian. Three persons in one Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, thinking about that is hard. It is the aspect of God that is the most, in my opinion, the most supernatural, the most otherworldly, the most transcendent. Every time you think you've got an idea in your head about God, God is going to be greater and more overwhelming, more vast, more mysterious, more have more depth. I think that's why in the Bible, repeatedly, God's people are, are told, don't create idols. Don't create an image of God because anything that you come up with with your finite human mind is going to be lesser than the overwhelming reality of God. And a big part of that is the fact that God is three in one. So we looked at the idea of the Trinity. Uh, we looked at the church in, re in relationship to the Trinity. Last Sunday we looked at the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, today we'll look at God's nature as a father and what that means to us and to the church. And we're looking at um, the letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What does it mean that when the time had fully come? Um, Christians, theologians, historians have argued about that. But it was a remarkable fact that uh, after Alexander the Great had united uh, a large part of the world around the Mediterranean all the way out to India, the Romans came in and they built roads and they built trade routes and they unified that vast region. They applied the rule of law, sometimes brutally, but for the first time, large parts of the world were at peace with each other. And it was at that time that Jesus came. And one of the reasons that Paul, who wrote the letter to the church in Galatia, could go to Galatia and plant a Christian church was because he could use those Roman roads, the Roman transport system, the peace of Rome, enable, and to enable him to travel around using a common language 
common currency, common law at a time of peace. And so perhaps this was one of the first times in the history of the world that large portions of the world were at peace and could actually receive and understand and hear about the person of God, the Lord of peace coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Who knows? You can evaluate that on your own. But it was a remarkable fact that the Christian church spread so quickly. And one of the reasons was because of that peace. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. That is a very dense verse. Every single one of those words is pregnant with meaning, and you can spend a lot of time, in fact, whole semesters on each of those words. What does it mean? What are the implications for us? Remember, we're thinking about Christmas. We're thinking about the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, the revelation of God, entered our world as a child. God sent his son, Jesus' father was God. Jesus was born of a woman, a divine father, a human mother. How's that going to work? Why did that have to work? Why did God decide to do it that way? Couldn't he have just shown up? Jesus could have just shown up as a sort of shimmering angel, person of light. We would have followed. Could have been some kind of avatar. Maybe he would just show up, you know, no belly button, just this new, brand new human being. Why did he have to um, show up as a child? Why did he have to be born of a woman? Why did he have to be born under the law? Well, one of the, the great places to find this is, is the Christian story. Uh, next Sunday, we're going to have our Christmas service uh, Lessons and carols. Lessons means readings. We're going to read the Christian story together. We're going to sing the Christian story together. And then the children of our church are going to act it out. And as you heard from Steve, it's going to be unbearably cute and chaotic. Um, but one of the texts that we use are the accounts of the birth of Christ in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew and particularly in Luke. Now let me read to you the account that begins the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, but you know that was based on Peter, a grim fisherman. He didn't care about babies. He didn't tell any stories about Jesus' birth. Matthew and Luke paid attention. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Pledge to be married means a legal commitment. Stronger than our idea of engagement, this was like a contract that they were going to become husband and wife. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. The first part uh, of Matthew talks about how, how the angel appeared to um, Mary, got Mary's consent, uh, a brave thing for her to do because uh, a pregnant, unmarried woman was very vulnerable back in that time. As you can see here, even uh, Joseph, a good man, his first response was divorce. 
because according to the law, uh, from his perspective and from the perspective of the community and culture that he was part of, Mary had broken her pledge to him. Adultery was defined as sex outside of marriage. Mary had been pledged to marry Joseph. She was pregnant, not by him. She had committed adultery in his eyes and in the lines of the law. And so the contract was broken. The marriage was off. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Just as God, through an angel, asks for Mary's consent, he asks here for Joseph's consent. God is not a bully. There is a divine courtesy here. God is fulfilling prophecy. God is saving the world. God is redeeming every human being. And yet it begins gently, graciously, with consent of everybody involved. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You are to give him the name Jesus. So God the Father names his son, Jesus, Jesus, which means savior or rescuer or uh, deliverer. Jesus is named by God the Father, but he is also named by Joseph. When Joseph woke up, he did what the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he, Joseph, gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph took Mary as his wife. That gave her a legal status. That gave her and her child a legal status. And when Joseph gives Jesus that, his name, Jesus, he is making him legally his son and legally part of Israel. He's adopting him. If, Jesus had, if Joseph had divorced Mary and disowned her child, Jesus would have been considered illegitimate. That is, he would have no legal standing in the nation of Israel. He would not have been considered part of any tribe of Israel, and he would not have been considered part of God's holy people. He would have been an alien, an outsider, no longer, well, never a representative of God's people before God. By adopting Jesus, Joseph makes him part of his family, his tribe, and the nation of Israel, the holy people in relationship to their God. Why did God do that? So that Jesus would be born under the law, the law of Israel, to redeem those under the law, everybody else equally, who is part of the covenant people, 
that we might receive adoption to sonship. There was a purpose in every step of this story. So what does that mean? Jesus had two fathers. He had a spiritual father, God. And if you go uh, and look at the Gospels, if you look, there are two genealogies in the Gospels. There's a genealogy in Matthew and there's a genealogy in Luke. And they're different. And it's upset people that they're different. How can Jesus have two genealogies? Well, if you read them, one of them is a biological genealogy. That's Mary's genealogy. And that goes all the way back to Adam, the first human being. If you look at Matthew, that's the gospel this passage is taken for, there's also a genealogy, but it is a a legal genealogy. It goes back through Joseph all the way to Abraham. Abraham was the one who God made a legal covenant with, a covenant of circumcision that creates the holy people. So in Jesus, we have these two distinct relationships. The spiritual father of Jesus is God. The legal father of Jesus is Joseph. And so Jesus is this unique person. Two natures, a divine nature and a legal adopted nature. A covenantal relationship with God and a personal relationship with God. And they're combined in one person. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, this is not about sex. Oftentimes through history, people have stressed the fact that, you know, Mary... Uh, Jesus was begotten by the Holy Spirit, not by the union of a man and a woman, and therefore she's sinless, and Jesus is sinless because there's no sex involved, and blah, blah, blah. Um, That's not what this is about. There's no indication, by the way, that Mary was a, a special person, although, of course, she was the mother of God, Jesus. She was chosen by God. In that sense, she was special. But she was a human being like everybody else, And the the Gospels say that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So whatever else is going on, it's not about sex. So what is it about? What is this story about? It's about sin. What was distinct about Jesus was that he was not a sinful human being. Unlike every other human being since Adam and Eve, Jesus was not the result of a union between a sinful man and a sinful woman. What does that mean? Well, human beings are sinful. That's what the Bible says very clearly. That means you. That means me. Every human being, every little one, cute little babies, sweet little old ladies, Mother Teresa, sinful. Sinful down to the core of their natures. Those of you who are parents know this. So what what does that mean? What does this word sin mean? Well, it's the same concept. Uh, You know, the Bible, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. In Hebrew, katao, 
Literally, sin means to miss the mark, to take the wrong turn, to miss the goal, miss the way. In Greek, hamato, to miss the mark, to go wrong. In fact, uh, the Greek word is, is uh, helpful because it's a word taken from the military, from archery. It means to miss the target with an arrow that you're aiming at. You're trying to shoot an arrow at something and you miss. That's hamato, that's sin, that's error, that's getting it wrong, not hitting what you're aiming for. So what does that mean when, it, when it's applied to human beings in relationship to God? Sin is missing God. Not having God as your goal, as your purpose, as your direction. To be a sinful human being means to make something other than God the goal or purpose of your life. To chase after other things. Money, sex, power, celebrity, possessions, whatever it is to have passions, hungers, desires, to focus on things other than God. And so before Jesus shows up, ever since Adam and Eve, every human being, every human heart, at the very core of our nature, is conflict, confusion. We are lost, we are scattered. Our hearts, our lives, our minds are filled with mixed motives, mixed goals. We're just plain mixed up. We are tempted. We chase after contradictory things. Our hearts are divided because they're not integrated and unified by focusing on that which they were created to be about, God. To sin is to lose that focus, lose that direction, lose that goal, and be scattered. To be dissipated. To have conflicted elements of your life that hurt you and hurt your life that always get in the way. So what does Jesus do? He brings into the world a new human nature, a fresh nature that points to God, that shows us what a human life looks like when it is pointed to God. In essence, he shows and gives and brings a do-over, a fresh beginning, a new start. In, the, uh, in theology, it's called sanctification. Being given a new nature that is not conflicted, is not confused. We still have that old nature. But we are given a new start, a new heart, a new spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, and the Holy Spirit always points at God, like a compass. Whatever else is going on, however lost you get in this world, there is within you a spiritual compass, the Holy Spirit, and that compass always points at God, true north, no matter what else is going on. That's Jesus' gift. And so the Christian life is learning to bring all the elements of your life 
into aim with that goal, God, to line everything up, to become righteous. Righteous means to be right, aligned with God. And that's what Jesus brought into the world. So I was trying to think of a good illustration of this. Um, and the best that I can come up with is shooting people. This tells you a lot about me, by the way. Um, when I was a teenager, I was in the equivalent of the National Guard in England, and I was part of the shooting team. Young soldier of the year, by the way. And what we would do in the shooting team, we'd go on a Saturday or Sunday morning, we'd go out into the, the ranges, the woods, these beautiful untouched areas of England in the south. It was actually gorgeous. And we would start at 100 yards, and then we'd move back to 200 and 300, and we'd go back as far as we could, and we would shoot at these targets. We would aim to hit targets. And this was before telescopic sights and optics. This was iron sights. And once you get past about three or 400 yards, those targets are very, very small. And it becomes very, very hard to aim at them. And um, I was very good at it. And so I'm going to show you, tell you, the Tony Hinchliffe shooting at people, or at least targets, aiming technique. Remember, we're talking about aiming. So when you lay down, you're all jangled. Your head is filled with stuff, what you had for breakfast, what you heard on the radio, what the guys are talking about. Your head's full of stuff. And you, you point in general towards the target. And your heart is thumping, and you're twitching, and there's all this stuff going on, and, and the end of the barrel is dancing all over everywhere. It doesn't work. You shoot like that, you might even not hit the target at all. So what do you do? You slow down. It's kind of a form of meditation. You focus on your breathing, and you look at the target, and you line up the sights with the target, and as you breathe, when you breathe in, the sights lift, and when you breathe out, the sights drop. And you get your, re your breathing in this rhythm, and you let everything else fall away. Everything that is not to do with pointing at the target, every thought in your head, every distraction, the pebble under your elbow, the stuff in your pockets, all the stuff that is stopping you relaxing. And you just focus on that target and your breathing. And even though it's this tiny little thing, a mere speck, eventually, every time you exhale, the sight falls and the target is right there. It's like sitting on top of the front sight. And so shooting becomes this exercise in meditation. No other thought in your head. Breathe in, breathe out, bang. Breathe in, breathe out, bang. And it sounds vicious and violent and, and brutal, but it's a lovely afternoon. The birds are singing. You're by yourself. Well, you're with the guys, but you're kind of in your own head, and you're looking at the target, and nothing else matters. And the more that you focus on that target, the more that you centralize your attention, get rid of all the distractions, the more accurate your aim is. Well, that's the Christian life right there. What are you doing when you pray? If you're like me, I think if you're like most people, when you first try to pray, your head is just full of stuff. 
I need to get some milk. I've got to reply to that email. This person doesn't like me. My mother needs a present. I mean, whatever it is, it's all going on in your head. And there's God. And so what do you do? You let those other things, you acknowledge them, they're there, you can't fight them. But you say something to the effect of Father, or Lord, or Jesus, or Holy Spirit, and you let the thought go. Whatever the distraction is, you just let it go. It's like you're, you're looking at a river and you're after the, the water. And whatever else is in the river, you just let float away until just the river remains. And as you do that, as your aim, as your attention, as the different elements of your life gather their focus, join their focus on God, that's when you're really praying. Because the Bible says the Holy Spirit is right in you. A direct connection with God. And once you get rid of all these distractions, it's just you and God left. And from that perspective, you can see not only where the errors, the sin in your life is, all the things that distract you from God, but you also begin to experience the wonder of connecting with your Creator. This happens in worship too. You know, that song we just sang, A Good, Good Father. It's a child and their father. It is not caring. Have you watched a child with a mother or a father when they're being hugged, when they're being kissed? I used to go to Starbucks during the day and uh, watch. There's a whole brigade of new mothers that come to Starbucks. They have clubs and they go around in tribes and there are loads of them. And you watch, you watch a new mother with a child. And mothers love to look at their child. They look them in the eyes and they just stare at them. They just look at them. And you can see on their face that there is absolutely nothing in the world that matters. Nothing. They don't want anything else. They don't want a Starbucks. They don't want to go on a vacation. They don't need a pat on the head. They don't need anything. Right where they are is right where they want to be. That's our relationship with our Father. Theologians talk about the mystical union, the beatific vision, the mysterium tremendum, the encounter with that which we cannot comprehend but that we can get to know. That is what it's about. Gathering all the forces, all the attention, all the elements of your life and focusing them on God. That's what sinlessness looks like. So how does baby Jesus help with that? Well, remember who he is. A spiritual father and a legal human father and mother. He's got a foot in both camps. You know, I said, all human beings are sinful. That means we are out of aim, out of accord. We're not lined up with God. We're all over the place. But Jesus is fully human and without sin, fully divine. He is a bridge. He is a path. He is an invitation. 
He is a way back to the Father. So I don't know if you noticed, but we've got this weird table in the center of our church. What is that? It's where we eat Jesus, his body and his blood. What a weird thing to do. By the way, the early Christians were accused of being cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. Why would we do such a thing? Because we are celebrating a truth, a fact. That Christ brought into the world a sinless human body, a sinless nature. He was fully aligned and in relationship with his Father. And not in some abstract way. He brought a literal body, a physical body. And that physical body was nailed to a cross. Flesh and blood. And what happened on that cross? He gave himself completely in exchange for our old natures. On the cross, Jesus Christ becomes sin. Our sin. And in exchange, he gives us his sinlessness, his perfect relationship with God. He makes us part of his family. And that's what we're celebrating right here. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So that you are no longer a slave, but God's child, And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Because you are his sons. We now have a new name. By the way, when you become a Christian, you're baptized. And you're baptized with a name. The name that God knows you by. There are no numbers in the Christian church. Only personal names. And God knows your name because you're part of his family. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Not just an idea, not just a philosophy or a teaching or an example, a spirit, new spiritual nature, a new direct connection and participation in the life of God. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. No matter what she's going on in your life, no matter what you think about yourself, the Spirit, this connection with God, the Holy Spirit, has set apart part of you, your very nature, which is now directly in relationship with the Father. And without sin, that means aimed perfectly at Him, and that that Spirit prays for you, even when you can't, cries out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave. That means you and I are free, not defined by human will, but only defined by God's will and God's purpose. And God created us to be free. But God's child, part of the family, the divine family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. 
no longer defined by our past or things that have happened to us or been done to us in the past, now defined by our future and what we're becoming. What's the difference between an adopted child and an orphan? A child is loved personally, directly, intimately. A child has a family. A child has a home. Well, the gospel tells us that we are adopted into God's family. We are now children of God, part of the family. And at the very center of the family, the Christian church, is the Lord's table. That means this is now your and my family table. And there's a place at this table for you and I personally. A reserved place set with your name on it and my name on it. And it will always be open. All it requires is your presence. And what does that mean? It means that no matter where you go in this world, no matter where you've been, you have a home. You have a place of security and love and care and nourishment. It's reserved for you. And no matter what happens now or in the future, your home will always be there. It's for all eternity because it's been provided for and guaranteed by God. This Christmas, think about that. The gospel, the Christmas gospel, is that those who put their faith in Jesus, those who make the exchange with him, have a home forever. Don't have to live in fear. Don't have to be lonely. Don't have to worry about the circumstances, tragedies. You might worry, but you can't be defined by them anymore. Because as Christians, we have a direction. We have a home to go to, to return to. And it'll always be open. That's why Jesus came. That's what it means that he brought light into the world. It's like the candle that your mother puts in the window so you always know that the home is there and it's lit and you can find your way back. That's the gift of Christmas. That's what we're celebrating. That's why we're here as a church. As we go to the table, and we're going to do that right now, I'd like you to think about that. Not some esoteric ritual, but a personal encounter with God. Your personal encounter with your God, now your Father, now your table, now your home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have made us family. We thank you that the center of our church is your family table. Lord, as we approach that table this morning, help us to see what it really means. Help us to receive the gift that you have given. Help us, Lord, to rest and find our home in you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.